Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you are listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite horror mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is the Alien franchise, and we are joined by guests Mary San Giovanni and V. Castro. Let's get spooky. Coroner's tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Hello. Hello. Thank you so (laughs) much for joining me today. How are you both doing? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm really fantastic. good. Thank you for having me. Of course. I was telling Mary right before we started recording, I'm so excited to have both of you on here. I've never done a dual interview before. So if the three of us are kind of bouncing ideas off each other more than usual, then uh, listeners, that's what's going on. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm learning as we're doing. Well, be gentle. Uh, <laughs> yes, please be gentle with me. If y'all would like to, I like starting the episodes out with just giving y'all a moment to really tell listeners, who are you? What kind of horror elements are you into? So, Mary, maybe let's start with you. Sure. Okay. Uh, I primarily do cosmic horror as far as writing goes. I just, I absolutely love it. I love the fluidity and flexibility of it. Uh, But I'm also, as a fan, I'm a a huge fan of pretty much anything with monsters in it. Anything with... uh, you know, ghosts and aliens and and creepy crawly things in the night there. So as far as like genre overlaps, if it overlaps into science fiction, if I hear aliens, I'm just totally sold. So, (laughs) but yeah, pretty much monster fiction. I imagine cosmic horror creature feature, the the alien franchise is like all of that. Oh, yes. (laughs) And when you have Brian King by your side, come on. (laughs) It's definitely always monster talk. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And then V, why don't you take a second? Go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, Yeah, my name. I go by V Castro. My name is Violet. Um, I'm Mexican-American from Texas, so I write a lot of um, horror, um, you know, that's heavily influenced by my culture, by uh, being a Latina, folklore, Mexican history, um, and uh, yeah, just kind of a different perspective, because I grew up with all the greats, you know, Aliens, and all the 80 horror films, and of course, Stephen King, and you know, all the classics, but I always felt there was something missing, like I never felt I saw myself or my community or any of the stories I grew up with. And I just kind of decided to just jump feet first and, and do it. So that's what I do. (laughs) Awesome. And I, I love living in this time period because I feel like representation horror is really a big thing right now. Like you're doing great work. I know Stephen Graham Jones is doing a lot of good work. Gabino Iglesias. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of big names really making sure that, those minority voices get heard. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so Mary, if we're gonna start digging into these movies and these video games and things, what do you think the core elements of an alien book movie game are? When you see the alien franchise tag on something, what do you go in expecting? Okay, so yeah, for me, I think that what makes the alien 
franchise work. I think in the beginning they uh, wanted to make a horror movie. And I think that there was potential there for an action movie as well in the series. So it seems to me that over the course of the franchise, as it developed further, what they tried to do was find that sort of happy medium, that perfect blend between an actual horror movie that continues to ratchet up tension and an action movie where we could see the full power of these creatures in motion. And uh, for me, what what makes it the most enjoyable though, I think is that uh, it, there, I mean, it's essentially in some ways it's kind of a, a haunted house story. I mean, not exactly, but you know, anything where I think where people are sort of contained in one environment and it is an element of that environment that is dangerous. Um, I like the idea that this creature, that the xenomorph is essentially a perfect predator. It exists basically to kill and eat and reproduce and that's it, you know, and, and that despite the fact that it is not technically considered a sentient being, like, you know, that it doesn't think like the way people do, it still has probably one of the most finely honed and advanced senses of instinct and uh, predatory, I don't know, prowess, I guess, uh, of anything I, I've seen. Like, it was just a beautiful design, if you think, in a nightmare monster. <laughs> This, this this creature that is is fully adaptable to a multitude of environments so that it can keep coming at you and keep killing. I agree completely. The xenomorphs creature design, like from the even just the shape, uh, the the Geiger inspired uh, visuals of it are terrifyingly creepy. And then you add to that. Uh, like you were saying, it's kind of next level predator uh, abilities. And there is something deeply unsettling about this creature. Yes. Uh, v, anything else to add to that? Uh, when you when you open up an alien thing, what are, what are you going expecting? Um, well, like I said before, like whenever I think of alien, like if you just say, hey, alien, aliens. I mean, the first thing that goes into my mind is Ripley. Because... You know, that was in 1979, mm -hmm. and and she's up to, you know, been in almost all of them. And to see a woman doing what she's doing, I mean, that was quite unique back in the day. And to a certain extent still, and it's still held up, and it's just gotten better and better. Um, same with uh, Vasquez, you know, she's... You know, to see a, a brown woman in that, um, even though the actress is not uh, Latina, it didn't matter just to see in that capacity. It was quite groundbreaking. So when I think alien aliens, I automatically think Ripley. You know, I connect to it as a woman automatically. Um, uh, I love how a droid also plays a part in each one. Mm -hmm. I, and the droid is different the way, you know, the, the droids almost intentions are different, but even that you're like, Oh, the droid has intentions. That's quite mm -hmm. cool. And then uh, I think similar to what Mary said is 
the xenomorphs just they're just really hard to fucking kill. <laughs> they just don't want to die. You just like have to like really try hard. Their blood, that acidic blood, that that goo, that thick saliva coming out of their jaws. It's just, you think of that, that moment of terror because they always pan in on that moment where you know it's just about to strike like a cobra and you've got that saliva. It really is just... <laughs> it, it's visually sticks with you but those are the things that when I hear alien aliens just pop into my mind so <laughs> yeah if I could add something to what to what Violet said I mean she brings up an excellent point that this was maybe one of the first movies where a, a woman wasn't uh, she, she wasn't in need of rescuing and she also wasn't like just surviving simply because she was running away yeah. You know, it, 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 I, I think it was maybe one of the first movies where it showed, I think, a very balanced and fair portrayal of a woman in this situation. You know, she I think so. She was tough enough to get this job, but she was understandably terrified. Like it, it's it's, I think, a good blend of it, it maybe a, a more realistic portrayal. I think people who don't really write with the understanding of how women think in mind would maybe have made her too strong, too perfect, too beautiful, too whatever. And she's not those things. She is just actually a survivor, same as anyone else. She just happens to be, um, I mean, in some ways, at first, she just happens to be lucky. And then in other ways, she's just resourceful. I mean, that's how she got the job she had in the first place, you know, was that she was good at what she did. And, and, I, and I like that. I, I think, you know, V makes a good point that it's a... Uh, um, it's, it's, I think, iconic for a number of reasons, the first Alien and the second one. But I definitely think that's one of the reasons, is that that maybe she sticks out in our minds as being a good heroine, a heroine and not a final girl, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Uh, I want to attribute a lot of that to Sigourney Weaver's performance, too, because it's yes. this kind of written towards that but she takes it next level she's got that reservation but then when when fight or flight kicks in she 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 not necessarily always makes the right decision but she always makes the decision that she makes work i'm a big sigourney fan uh yeah so, there so um i think i'm gonna throw the script out i think we've already mentioned vasquez i think we've already mentioned why that character speaks so well to you v so I think yeah. this is a really good natural time to kind of spin off into talking about your book. So if you could, don't let me guide you into spoiler territory here. Whatever whatever <laughs> secrets you want to keep. I know the book doesn't come out until October. Uh, yeah. Keep whatever secrets. But kind of what's going on in this book? Uh, what inspired you to write this? Where'd you kind of take the character? Well, I think Mary brought up a really good point of what I wanted to do with this book. I didn't, I wanted to show another side of Vasquez. Um, you know, as a brown woman, you're always expected to be strong. You're always expected to endure. You're always expected to carry the load without complaining or, um, and just taking it. You know, you're always supposed to do it with a smile. Um, and I wanted to show Vasquez as a woman. Like, where is that soft, where is that soft side? Where's that human side? What made her into that woman doing pull-ups, 
with a, you know, tattoo on her cheek and um, with this chiseled body. It wasn't just so she looked a certain, looked good for a man or she, you know, why is her hair short? Why the red bandana? What are all of those very, very human motivations behind the persona? But also I wanted to uh, incorporate the heritage behind it. So, you know, um, I was recently at StokerCon and I, I was on a panel actually with Brian Keene, Papa Keene, <laughs> Papa Keene of horror. Um, and uh, it was about relatable characters. And I, I mentioned that like one thing I wrote because I do incorporate a lot of my heritage is every Easter, there's these things we make called cascarones. And basically you spend weeks hollowing out eggs. You like gingerly make your omelets and your scrambled eggs with a little hole on top of the egg <laughs> then you wash them out right and yeah. then you get that pez paz dye and you color them and you <laughs> fill them with confetti you glue a um a tissue paper top and then you go stalking people and hit them over the head really hard with them <laughs> so what i do in the book is i use you know i take it back to vasquez's childhood and I use the cascarones, the making of the cascarones, the way she, you attack people with cascarones to foreshadow her, um, how she encounters eggs in the future. You know, oh, she's cool. that art of making them. Yeah. So, you know, I try to just bring in those cultural references, you know, the soldaderas, which were the Mexican warriors that, well, soldiers, sorry, soldiers. Um, during the different wars and you know she comes from that that's in her blood you know and I wanted to you know show that fighting spirit but also you know it's no secret she in the book she has two children mm. but what did she go through why does she not have those children what happened what happened to put her in prison you know and um without giving up too much away, you know, I also kind of shine a light on things that people of color face in modern times, you know, when it comes to racial profiling, when it comes to um, being, um, you know, the focus of violence, mm -hmm. and really take on, you know, those big topics, but in a science fiction horror narrative, because, I mean, we all love horror, and a lot of horror focuses on real horrors that people experience mm -hmm. and so I put that in so that's kind of like and then there's like a bunch of xenomorphs and, <laughs> and there's some tattoos a lot of tattoos and <laughs> so that's basically you know it goes it gives you a good a good view of Vasquez but also her legacy and what she could what she stood for and what she can stand for for a lot of brown women nice I I love the fact that a good storyteller can take something as outlandish as xenomorph chasing people around in space and like make sure to tell a human story through that. Um, so, okay, so that is dropping when October, right? But which October twenty fifth? Yes, you can pre order it now. Okay, and I will include links to that in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you. At home. Um, and if we're already talking about uh, our books that are coming out, Mary, uh, you also have a book coming out, I think technically next year, right? Yep, February, end of February. I think the 
21st, 23rd, somewhere around there. Yes. Okay. Uh, 21st or 23rd of February, 2023. Um, Alien, enemy of my enemy. Um, and I read the the blurb for the book. And I know I, I follow you on Twitter. So I saw that you had a post a little while ago talking about how talking about your love for the fantasy genre. Um, and even just in the blurb for this book, it sounds like a very fantasy in space approach to um, the, the alien franchise. Uh, you've got, you've got a moon falling on a planet and <laughs> you've got uh, just all sorts of things going on. Uh, is that, um, do, do I kind of have the read on this book right? Or am I way off base here? Well, I, I think you're right. You're definitely right in the sense that, and, and I only kind of noticed this about myself recently that uh, I think where, where, fantasy has influenced me the most in writing horror has primarily been that I dragged them through hell and back. (laughs) In almost every book, there is that sort of epic adventure in that they just have to go through so much just to get to a place where they're sort of safe. And that's definitely true in this book. Uh, The, because it's not, um, because it's a, a licensed property, you know, of course there's certain things you have to follow. So as far as the, fantastical elements it's difficult to veer too far from what people you know love and expect but I was able to work some some fun things into it see see this book is uh the third of uh three books that are supposed to sort of segue between the uh the movie franchise and the video games into the role-playing, the de- uh, desktop role-playing games and further um, video games and, 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 and such like that. So there is a bit of the uh, connecting of, of certain political elements in it, um, but I was also able to, I think, work in certain things that because it's sort of a, a transitional book in, in the franchise's history, like where we're things are starting to change from the, from a socio-political standpoint, I was able to do some kind of fun stuff. Some kinds of, I guess, things that appeal to that cosmic horror, that fantasy element of writing that I just sort of love, you know, even though they're not strictly those things. Um, one of the things that the book does, because like you said, the basic premise is that uh, this moon on which two uh, science colonies are currently located. Uh, they've discovered that it's it's wobbling out of orbit and it's going to crash into the planet that it revolves around. And they don't have much time. So basically, we're down to two skeleton crews: one for Seeks and Pharmaceutical, and one for Whalen Utani. And the Seeks and Pharmaceutical folks, you know, they're they're just they're they're ready to go. <laughs> you know, they 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 want off of this moon. Uh, and the Whalen Utani folks unfortunately have have this sort of additional onus on them that if they don't produce results, Weyland Yutani is not going to come get them. And the results that they're working on, of course, have to do with uh, certain things about the xenomorphs. So that <laughs> goes it. horribly, horribly wrong. And uh, so ne- what, what I try to do, when, when you're writing the third book, and, and it's you don't have to have read the other books to read this one. They're very much, you know, Titan is, was very clear that each of these books is a standalone thing. 
the only overarching premise is that the politics. But I do think that when you are writing something where you're taking into account so much of uh, other people's stories influencing even little parts of the book that you're on, that you want to make sure that it's that you're doing something that's going to make it stand out um, in and of itself. That is going to make it a standalone thing. So I got to play with uh, some variations on aliens, which I think uh, were really fun. And that's basically where the title comes from, that if you find creatures who are deadly and, and want to kill you and uh, are essentially a absolutely devastating force in the confi confined environment where you are, then you have to, sometimes you have to rely on a, another enemy who may be stronger, which in this case would be a xenomorph. So I got to have xenomorphs pitted against bio drones and other predatory aliens on, on this moon. And it was just, it was fun. <laughs> it was really, really, really fun. Uh, and I think that, I mean, what I strive for, what I hope I achieved was both the horror elements, both that that sort of impending uh, dread of these things finding you and some of the action elements because, you know, with the battles and stuff like that. And um, uh, to go back a little bit to, to, to what Violet said, there is there's a female protagonist. She She's not really in the beginning strong at all she's this is she's not a, she's not a marine she's not a fighter she's a scientist and um and sort of a soft one at that and uh it was important for me to show not just how she becomes autonomous in this situation how she becomes stronger and tougher and more of a survivor but why like how how really helpless women feel when they're relegated to that role of um, don't worry about it. I got this. I'll protect you. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Give me a gun. Let me protect myself. I can't do this. I can't handle this kind of stress, you know, of, of having to worry about uh, my safety being in the hands of another person all the time, you know? And so you have basically a number of stressors, not the least of which is the fact that because this moon is going to crash into this planet, the moon is falling apart. So there's storms, there's earthquakes, there's all kinds of, you know, it, it actually has physical effects on the body, you know, the gravity problems, um, you know, the, the electromagnetic problems are all these the, the causing physical effects on the body while they're trying to fight off a very external, very present threat, uh, which is the xenomorphs who can tend to adapt to things even in a dying moon. So it's, it's, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I can't uh, wait to read that. <laughs> <laughs> like a blast. I, I don't under, I don't know how you tackle all of that and not make it a 300 K book. Like, yeah. <laughs> or a 300 K words. Um, uh, how do you, how do you, okay. Um, Okay, so uh, I came, came up with a couple of spinoff questions while we were going through this. Um, so, Mary, something that you were talking about there was that um, you, you had to find a way to make your story kind of stand out from everything else that was going on in the Alien franchise. Um, I think this is one of the franchises that does a really good job of finding different 
things to key in on with each entry. Sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it doesn't work as well. But like everybody knows the difference between Alien 1 and Alien 4. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody knows the difference between Prometheus and Aliens 2. I, I can say those titles and the right movie pops to mind, whereas other franchises don't necessarily have that. Like, for the life of me, I don't know what happened in Friday the 13th, 3 through 7. <laughs> I know technically like they, they have their own stories they're telling, but they all just blend in together to me. Um, what do you think it takes to really... Um, I, I'm trying to come up with the question as I'm asking it here. <laughs> um, uh, what kind of a balancing act is there uh, between staying true to what we think of with this franchise and finding that way to kind of make it your own? Um, are there, were there any points in making your stories that you felt like you started crossing a line and you had to pull it back in? Or were there points in your stories that it started feeling too familiar and you needed to find ways to shake it up? Uh, did either of you kind of experience that in the creation process? I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, for me, it was, um, I, I, I happen to have a conversation with, with two, two friends who are huge, huge fans of the franchise. And you know, they talked about things that they would have liked to have seen the movies do, you know. Um, t- they talked about things where they thought, you know, where the movies maybe went off the rails a little bit, but the Xenomorph itself, the design, and I mean this not just from a a movie making standpoint, but like if you looked at it from a biological standpoint, let's say, of the creature itself, it's a very fluid and adaptive biological design. And that's something that, you know, as I said before about cosmic horror that I always liked, was the idea that there's so much potential because the the confines, for lack of a better word, of the genre itself actually uh, promote the idea of change and of, of different things, of different of variations, you know. And the xenomorph is like that. It, it, the, the the xenomorph takes on characteristics of the thing which is which it uses as a host. Uh, it is specifically designed to adapt to a much, much, much broader range of environments than uh, most living beings. And, uh, and through it all, there's still, like you said, a very distinctly xenomorph element to it. And I think that's what allows artists and writers to be flexible with this uh, particular uh, franchise because the the design of the creature itself, and I also think that's one of the memorable things about it, is that the design of the creature itself allows you to kind of take the ball and run with it in your own direction. Uh, like in this book, I, we can do spoilers, right? It's We could do little spoilers. Anything you feel like. <laughs> Keep whatever <laughs> Spoil whatever things you want. Okay. I'll just give this one little spoiler just as an example. Like um, on this moon where they, where they start out, the only predatory alien creature on this uh, is this ginormous um like an elk like a deer kind of creature i mean like seven eight feet tall huge antlers and it's a carnivore so it's these sort of like you know very very angry deer 
and uh, <laughs> <laughs> some things, and, and there aren't, there isn't a whole lot left living on this moon, but there are these things, and uh, and they're mean, they're vicious. You know, the, the beginning of the book discusses how how vicious they are, and I have a single line in the first chapter in one section, and all it is is you know that the xenomorph came across one of these deer. And then later on, I have this like really cool opportunity to show a xenomorph that's maybe like two sizes bigger than the normal ones, and it's got antlers. And <laughs> and, it, it, and it, I was like, so it, like that's the kind of fun stuff that you can do that you can make it yours, and still stay within the parameters of the the franchise itself, precisely because. It is, it's a creature that allows for that adaptability. And I think that's what makes it fun to write. Yeah, so the, the creature design itself kind of parallels what the franchise is able to do. I, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, v, anything to add? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, again, like, you know, the pull for me to write this was the character. Right. Vasquez. So there's a, there is a lot of emphasis on on her um you know and for me i wanted to show her background but you've got to you know she doesn't she has a very short um window of her kind of her what she her encounter with the xenomorph so i do a little bit of her training where i can introduce the droid again because that always fascinates me the droids because they're in all the films um, but then with her legacy, again, like Mary said, you know, what are people doing with these xenomorphs? Mm -hmm. How are people, again, humans trying to exploit, you know, going from world to world and finding what they can exploit, um, especially, Way especially Wayland yutani mm -hmm. So for me, you know, I had to, you know, there are certain things they had to stick with with Vasquez and that were canon, I couldn't really depart from. But everything else, I was able to make my own, incorporate more of my heritage, or incorporate more of my emotions. And that's that was a big, big deal for me. Um, because that was what this, I mean, it's the name of the book, Vasquez. That's what I really wanted to show. Um, but when it comes to her legacy, obviously, I had to, it's an alien book after all, um, but then create new creatures. Like, what are these experiments doing? And, um, you know, showing how greed and how exploitation um, really twists people, mm -hmm. even they can come from the best of places. Um, and how greed and money, how it can affect families. And in my culture, family is really a big thing. It's really huge. And so I wanted to show kind of almost a prodigal son moment um, within the family and bring a family element because, you know, we've always seen, you know, a bunch of strangers thrown together. But what if your family and you're on opposing sides what do you do then when you have to, you know, face your own blood? So that's, again, something that I wanted to toy with. We've got two very different approaches to the same franchise happening at the same time. So that's that's very cool. 
but that's what makes it cool as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. The flexibility, even within this one franchise. Let's kind of bring it back for a second and talk about uh, the Alien and then the Aliens movie one-on-one by themselves. Because we've touched on a bunch of things that happened in those <laughs> movies uh, and what, kind of why we like the movie so much, but we haven't really focused in on any of them yet. So with the first Alien movie, something that I think is really interesting about it is that it was considered a flop when it came out. The studio made it. They didn't make their money back. Apparently, 20th Century Fox was really frustrated about it and was trying to, like, can aliens while they were making it. But clearly, nowadays, we think back on it, and Alien is one of the best horror movies. Mm. Would y'all have any thoughts about maybe why it wasn't so well-received out of the gates and maybe why it was a grower over the course of time? I think because as far as horror up to that point, you know, people, you know, 1979, I think we had Halloween then. I think, uh, you know, we had a specific idea of horror Mm -hmm. and we had a specific idea of science fiction, you know, space odyssey. There was a really like that's horror, that's science fiction, just like in publishing a lot of times, like, okay, where is your book going to sit on a shelf? Mm-hmm. But in reality, who makes these rules? You should be able to blend anything. You know, I write a lot of erotic horror. I love putting erotic elements into my into my storytelling. And so I think people didn't probably didn't know what to make of it. You know, is it horror? Is it science fiction? I'm going to be scared. There's a woman. Who is this woman that's like, you know, a badass? I think people probably just didn't know what to make of it and thought, oh, I don't know if I should go see it or I don't know. I think that's anything when you start to blend genres and elements and get creative. But it's a great thing because it allows you, again, that flexibility. Mm -hmm. You can go like I love how, you know, Mary was saying in her book, like this moon is collapsing and it affects the bodies and it's, you know, all of these real science fiction elements are there but then you've got the terror of these of these creatures and of the xenomorph that's really cool but if you're like oh I like my horror with a guy chasing people around in tiny t-shirts or topless Mm -hmm. and they're virgins (laughs) or they just lost their virginity (laughs) like if that's the only way you'll accept horror Okay, but you're not going to necessarily want to mix them. So I think that's probably just people not knowing what it was. Whereas nowadays, we're used to the blending of genres Mm -hmm. and actually like it. I personally love books that have a bit of everything in there because then it keeps you guessing because it's true that old saying, there's nothing new under the sun. So why not mix it up? Why not surprise people with different genres, with different elements? Um, so, and, and very, you know, luckily, um, aliens, you can do that. You can play around with different genres and add different things. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Violet. I mean, I think that uh, up until that point, science fiction was probably mostly... Uh, and I, I apologize if I fudge the dates, but it was probably Star Trek in the 60s. Yeah. Aliens were shown as basically just different 
slivers of humanity, you know, um, or Star Wars, where there's, again, the aliens are just other kinds of people, you know. Uh, the Thing, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I also would argue one of the greatest horror movies ever made, it ran into the same problem, because people wanted to think of aliens during that late 70s, early 80s, uh, we'd, we'd moved far away from the concept of alien invasion in the 50s, right? So in the 70s, early 80s, you know, you get things like E.T., where the aliens are cute and cuddly and just want to go home, you know? I think there is that that element of uh, resistance, like Violet said, to uh, thinking outside the box in terms of what alien stuff could be. Oddly enough, it seems like people didn't want to be uncomfortable, even in their horror. They didn't want to think of you know, these, these beings as being out there in the universe and, and coming after us. I, I think too, that uh, you run into a case of, of the structure, you know, like, I think that Alien was very much made as a horror movie. It was basically one of those, you know, trapped environments. This one happened to be in space uh, where the, they're basically trapped, you know, in, in a, in a closed location with a deadly threat. And it unfolds that way. It unfolds as an increasingly uncomfortable and increasingly tense movie and, and gets um, right up to the end where, where, I mean, the first time you're watching this, you're breathing just as hard as she is when she's trying to slip into that spacesuit, you know? And I think that that's why Aliens has a more action approach to it because I think that they thought it was the horror element that didn't work. And that wasn't the case. The horror element did work. And, and, and I could be proved wrong, but it was always sort of my opinion that what sort of resurrected Alien as the great classic that it was, was in the 80s when, when women started to say, hey, you know, we're not just, you know, topless just got out of the shower oh my god I just tripped over my own foot and what am I going to do and I can't <laughs> run this thing that that moves like two miles <laughs> like two miles an hour you know that, that women are actually resourceful and can kind of handle themselves and that it's more it's like it, it, horror in the 80s was almost like like fairy tales like if you really look at Grimm's fairy tales what makes them work is that the, the women in those fairy tales were incredibly clever and resourceful and they, even though they couldn't be out there swashbuckling, they used the, the talents that they had. They used the abilities that people believed, at the very least, women possessed at the time, which was their smarts, their ability to charm, their ability to talk their way out of a situation. Mm. Um, and I think that women recognized in Ripley a, a more accurate representation of how women would behave you know we they didn't need that like she didn't need dallas to save her in fact she tried to save him you know and the even her personality change between alien and aliens is she's been through trauma that that hard shell at the beginning of aliens is primarily post-traumatic stress i would say you know mm -hmm. uh and, and I, I i think it's something women can relate to that it's a strength born of necessity but it's a strength nonetheless. And I, I think that that changed the trajectory of how certain horror movies were approached in the future. But I could see that there, there being an initial resistance because horror, like Violet said, horror, horror wasn't like that prior to that. It was either like these sort of MR James ghost stories, even Rosemary's Baby, 
which is a story about a woman and a very woman issue because she's pregnant, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's all complete. And she still has no real autonomy at all in the story, you know? Mm-hmm. So this, this was kind of, I think, a step in a different direction. And I would say a, a lot of times when movies like that take chances, maybe the box office doesn't reflect an appreciation of that, but it does with the fans. Yeah. I think it's the fans that pulled it out of the fire, frankly. That's my old lady soapbox right there. <laughs> um, and you also, so when I was trying to look this up myself, because that that just kind of floored me when I saw that it wasn't successful, quote unquote. Yeah, I'm floored by that. I didn't know that. Gates, I was, I was trying to figure that out, out why. And one of the theories I came across that kind of like glances off of everything you were saying, too, was that this was one of the first horror movies that really made the men in the theater feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm taken these women and put them in a position of strength but on top of that they're also just like openly attacking some things that men have never had to deal with before like the face hugger latching onto them and impregnating mm-hmm. not first guy's name but um and 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 him getting killed in effectively like this horrifically gone wrong childbirth scenario mm. uh, that there's a lot of things like that that maybe if you're a guy and you haven't had to really wrap your head around things like that it hits different uh yeah. maybe maybe the audiences weren't ready for that like you even go into the design of that first xenomorph xenomorph with that super phallic like head shape and everything mm-hmm. that i think you're onto something there with that just uncomfortableness with uh maybe the way they're approaching this horror. Despite the fact that for some reason, the franchise is not big on like scenes with, you know, there's not a lot of sex in, in these movies at all. Right. Um, but and I mean, now that you mentioned it, it is, it is very sexual. The imagery is very sexual. I mean, I know a lot of it was based on Geiger's art, which was very sexual, but yeah, everything is either phallic or, or, or vaginal in some way. I mean, even the, yeah. even the eggs open, you know, the way the face huggers look from underneath. I mean, it's all very <laughs> flesh slapping sounds and, yes. and fluid squishiness and, you know. Well, I mean, I mean it, of that. yeah, it's penetration without consent. When you think mm-hmm. of face hugger, it's exactly. penetration without consent because it's that little thing that goes into the mouth and yep. releases the egg and then it doesn't go off until it's done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but it, it, it brings up an excellent point that I think maybe that is why women, I mean, you've got a, a, a woman protagonist and an alien, so a woman antagonist. And it is, it's, it's women's issues that are foisted on men and women alike, you know, but I think maybe that's, it might be why we are both uniquely receptive to the franchise as women and and possibly why we are uniquely adapted to write it you know I mean the queen is essentially power I mean she is this huge larger than life magnificent creature Mm -hmm. who is reproducing and producing and producing and she's almost unstoppable yeah you know she really really is she's huge and without giving up too much away, what I do in my book is they recognize that the scientists recognize that. And they're like, 
how do we control her? How do we thwart her power? How do we diminish her enough to get what we want from a queen without stopping her from producing? And so it really, you know, touches on a few things with what they do to the queens in in the book I wrote, um, because I wanted to to talk about that pretty much, you know, that possessing of her power, taking it away, but still using it. Yeah. (laughs) So really like powerful subject matter that you don't necessarily think I'm walking into a big budget horror movie. Let's go (laughs) process all of this. (laughs) (laughs) That is what's so great about writing and creating as a female now is that you can like just put all of this into your work and subliminally connect with people mm-hmm. to hopefully allow people to understand you better through art. And I try to do that, you know, with Vasquez's backstory is that racial profiling is real. Mm-hmm. Discrimination is real. Prejudice is real, you know, and and violence against brown women that goes completely unheard, you know, that goes ignored is very real. But you put it, you know, some people turn that, oh, I don't want to hear this. But you put it in a book with with an iconic character and people want to hear, they want to see, they want to listen, they get outraged. And maybe, just maybe, when they hear it or see it or experience it with a friend or a colleague or hear it on the news, Mm-hmm. They might just be outraged for real. It might connect with them. And for me, storytelling is all about connection. Because yeah. the thing is, the xenomorph will rip you apart no matter what color you are, no matter how much money you have. Um, as you see in Prometheus, I mean, I love the fact that, you know, um, Peter Wayland is like, show me. And then you just get like that two seconds with like, you know, the engineer just like whack. Like literally he come all that way. He come all that way. He, he wear his fancy clothes. He spent all this money and it's done in three seconds. You're like, yep, dumbass. <laughs> you that dumb. What do you think was going to happen? Right. You think that you really are going to stand in front of an eight foot tall being. And they're going to be like, Oh my God, it's you. <laughs> Seriously, and that's the thing about the xenomorph as well, is it is an equalizer. It does not care. Everybody, no matter who you are, is going to get wrecked. (laughs) Period. I agree. And and Violet brings up an excellent point. And I I mean, I don't don't think I I just want to add, I don't think I could put it any better. But when you're a woman writer... In, particularly in a genre that for for some time has, is more or less dominated by male fans and male creators, you worry that the stories you want to tell are going to somehow fall flat because they're not the experiences of the target audience. But one of the things I think that you learn over time, if you've been doing this long enough, is that you there are ways to tell your story and have it be relevant to as broad an audience as possible. It's it's how you present the material, how you get into it, and and yes, yeah, sometimes when you are uh, when you use a great equalizer like a xenomorph, you can show that certain issues that people think, well, that's 
that's an issue for people of color, not me because I'm white, or that's an issue for women, not me because I'm male, you know, whatever the case is, you know, you can show that, no, these are actually universal things that should affect all of us, that should touch all of us. Um, if maybe they don't affect you, but maybe they affect your, your, your daughter, you know, maybe they affect your best friend. Maybe they affect the person who a month from now is going to save your life. You know, I mean, just there's, there's a, a, a way to show, I think, the universality of the human condition, even from a very specific point of view. And I think that Alien is one of those franchises that allows us to do that. You know, particularly, I think, because, particularly because of its fluid nature, but also because it is science fiction. And we like to think, God willing, that in the future, things will be better. And what that franchise shows is that, well, you know, the, the only, uh, you know, the only, <laughs> I guess, equality that we see in the future is that everybody's sort of screwed by corporations. You know? Yeah, a thousand percent. Oh, my God. A thousand percent. It's like pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Please let this be the uh, the dystopian future that we avoid by watching the movies. Like, exactly. <laughs> awesome. So I want to kind of end on one one last pivot question here. Usually, I'm going to end <clears throat> these these episodes by asking our guests, like, what is your dream project? What is the thing that you would want to work on? But y'all are already like making something with the Alien franchise, so that's amazing. So I'm I'm going to spin the question a little bit for y'all what franchise or what what horror property would y'all like to sink your teeth into next let's say let's say the books are a huge success everybody from every studio starts approaching you we want you to make a spin off of this we want you to we want you to put your put your stamp on that what what do you go for next oh, predator and alien versus predator i am obsessed with predator I've got to do a Predator. I think Titan is a little, I, you know, it's not certain with the license. But I mean, honestly, I would love to do an Alien versus Predator because I loved what they did with the Alien versus Predator um, film with a Black, you know, protagonist. I mm-hmm. loved that. I thought it was really cool. And I loved the ending. That was really neat. But I want to make that Predator film with Anna. And I, I wrote that on Twitter. I want to write Anna's story because she tells that cool story in the jungle and you never know who is she in the camp. Like, was she was she secretly the leader or was she the daughter of the leader? And was she, you know, was she really CIA? And, you know, why did that, you know, I want to write her story. And I just love also um, Predator 2. I just, I don't know. I just think you could really do some really cool mishmashing of DNA. You could re- do some mm-hmm. really cool, I don't know. I just love Predator and I love Alien versus Predator just because the way I write and being a lover of horror, I would definitely do that more than say like a Star Wars or mm-hmm. or I'd want to create my own Latina superhero. But Predator, I think is badass. I've just always loved it. Both, I, would, I mean. I would totally read that. <laughs> you did a Predator story, <laughs> all in. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's in June right now. And I know in August that Prey movie is coming out. So the yes. franchise is getting some steam again. So 
if nice. uh, if the people in charge of 20th Century Fox are listening to this podcast. I'm ready for a Predator, you know. And Alice, I want to continue the story of the book I wrote because it ends where it is a standalone, but they leave it where, you know, it could go further. And, right. um, and so I have some ideas. But again, you know, I would, I'd still love a Predator. Mary, how about you? I... Uh, my first, my absolute first choice would be Silent Hill. I'm a huge, 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 huge Ooh, Hill. yes. I, I could write, I could write that in my sleep. I, <laughs> I practically live there. I have the maps memorized. I'm like an uber Silent Hill geek. Nice. <laughs> so I could, I, I would totally do a Silent Hill thing. Other than that, I mean, if we're talking, if we're talking outside of the the Alien franchise, because I think it would be fun to do more Alien books too, but probably something at John Carpenter's, like In the Mouth of Madness or The Thing, you know, something where I could, uh, The Thing in particular, I think I could do, because In the Mouth of Madness, you, you really could only kind of do a novelization. It would be tough to do something unless it was sort of a post-apocalyptic thing at this point. But The Thing, if you go by canon and this is possibly a spoiler if you go by the canon of that of that set uh the thing does make it back to the mainland and the nature of that creature again is very fluid you could tell almost anybody's story anywhere on the planet you know because within i think they'd calculated that within something like three months most of the world would be infected the way the thing operates, if it followed the same trajectory. I was like, so you could basically write a, just about anybody's story anywhere. <laughs> I was like, yes, I can mm-hmm. do that. So yeah, so, so I think probably one of those properties where it's, I like, you know, like, like Alex said, I like the the blending of science fiction and horror. I like the blending of fantasy and horror too. Fantasy was, fantasy was sort of my first love, but I think that since horror tends to reflect the times, you know, I think science fiction horror blends are going to become more, you know, obviously more increasingly popular as we develop medicine, we develop science, technology. You know, there's, I think, a lot of room to do fun stuff with that, with that particular kind of blend. So probably one of those. That sounds great. I can't believe somebody actually went through and did the math of how fast it would spread. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's like totally there's like this website where they lay out all the math and in like based on what um i think it was wilford brimley's character was doing on that computer you know the probabilities they they do they, the guy the, the the person lays out the whole <laughs> the whole math well like well based on these calculations uh the entire earth's population is something like i think three months it was three months maybe to get at least to all the countries in the world. And it was something maybe like six to nine months before the entire planet was nothing but things. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. We set a story right at the end of that timeline. And- exactly. <laughs> 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 Almost like an I am legend thing when you're one of the last people that's still a person. Yeah. Don't kill the dog this time. My God. <laughs> uh, I would try not to. I would try not to kill the dog. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I almost, I, we almost did a whole alien episode without me mentioning my my favorite character, Jones the Cat. Oh. <laughs> We've got what I think is the only character cat in all of horror, and he survives. He does. Like I know that there's this whole website, Does the Dog Die, where they go through and they yep. talk about in every single movie, does, does the dog die? Cats don't have that problem. 
the stuff's going on. The cat's going to go hide in the back of the closet until it all blows over. Like, exactly. I know. Cats are like, fuck y'all humans. You don't exactly. even know. <laughs> you, you got this, right? I'll, I'll be in the closet. Got... <laughs> Let the dog handle it. I got things to do. Major kudos to whoever on the creative team decided to put the cat in there and let it, let it get all the way through. You know, I had read somewhere the reason the cat is there was to show a certain human side of Ripley, like a soft side, like a maternal side okay. of Ripley, because they had made her so, I guess in their minds, they had made her so tough that they thought she didn't come across as being realistic, but they, but, but because she is a mother, you know, and that she did, she did love Jonesy and she did let, you know, want the, the companionship of another living thing that, that they put that in her, that she would specifically rescue Jonesy because, because she is, because she's a human being, you know, with feelings, you're not going to leave an, a living thing that a little innocent living thing that you love on, on a ship that's going to blow up with a horrible monster on it. So, so we get, we get Jonesy <laughs> as the kid proxy and alien that we get nude and aliens. Mm-hmm. Kind of becomes a running thing i guess well again i'm i am floored that i got the chance to get you both on as guests uh thank you so thank much. thank you for having me absolutely thank you this was a lot of fun yeah. yeah absolutely i enjoyed it but that just about wraps us up for this episode everybody listening thank you so much for joining us don't forget to like subscribe or look directly into the egg-like opening of the streaming service of your choice and we will see you next time <laughs> Thank you. Bye. (laughs) I am William Sterling, and this has been another episode of the Killer Mediums Podcast. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue, so if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. (laughs) 